This is a Cherish podcast, and I'm your host, Michael Boudreau. I'll be taking you for an inside look behind the glamorous facade of the interior design industry. At a time when every aspect of the business, from sourcing to trends to marketing to dealing with clients, is undergoing rapid change. Like any close relationship, the client-designer connection can be fraught. The designer is charged with making the client's dream home into reality. And the process, which can last years, is rife with pitfalls, from minor misunderstandings to major delays to blown budgets. It's an intimate and personal collaboration, yet it is also a business relationship. And personalities, personal tastes, even personal issues all come into play. Sometimes it seems a minor miracle that any design project arrives at a successful completion. So is there any way to tell early on if the client-designer matchup will be successful? Can you predict at the first or second meeting if success is in store or that this is the wrong client for you? Are there signals you should be picking up? What should you be asking? And what should you be listening for? I'm lucky to have with me two designers who have navigated this complex territory for years and whose many repeat clients testify not only to their skills as designers, but to their ability to handle complex human interactions. First is Susan Zeiss Green, who for more than 35 years has been creating classic interiors filled with fine antiques and contemporary craftsmanship in Manhattan, the Hamptons, Palm Beach, and Nantucket, where she has a home. Her beautifully appointed rooms merge tradition with warmth and grace and are always supremely comfortable. Her work has been featured in every major design magazine, and she has participated in the Kipps Bay Show House eight times. Welcome, Susan. Thank you, Michael. I'm delighted to be here with you. We are also fortunate to have with us Joy Moyler, whose background includes stints working with Skidmore Owings and Merrill, Terry Despont, and Ralph Lauren and Giorgio Armani, where she was U.S. head designer of the Armani International Design Studio. So it's not surprising that her work is infused with the love of fashion and history. She has adapted both traditional and contemporary interiors, and all her work is infused with Luke's details and vibrant color. In addition to residences across the country, she's working on a golf resort outside Moscow and a seaside villa in Portofino. Hello, Joy. Hello, Michael. Thank you for having me. Always a pleasure to hear your voice. So I wanted to get a sense from each of you. I mean, you are both at very illustrious points in your career, but I want you to think back to early days when I think it's probably more likely to happen. But has either one of you had a client disaster? Like, have you ever fired a client? Have you ever had a client fire you? Susan, why don't we start with you? That's a very fascinating question. It's sort of like tumbleweed in my brain going backwards. So the first part of your question was, did I ever have a client fire me? I think that was the first. I had one client fire me. It was 35 years ago. I had several employees. I had a very, very nice client. We got along famously. And then one day, the client told me they could no longer work with me, that they did not have enough money to continue on this project. We parted amicably. A few days later, I returned to my office about five o'clock, just as we were just about closing, and I answered the telephone, and I never answered the telephone in the office. I just happened to be standing there and picked it up, and I said, oh, good afternoon, Susan's Icy Screen, 
And he said, oh, this is so-and-so from so-and-so company. Can I ask you a question about the four-poster bed that you have ordered for Mr. and Mrs. So-and-so? And I, my heart started racing. And I said, yes, certainly. How can I help? And he asked me the question. And what happened, to cut to the chase, is they retained my assistant. Oh, my God. That's like almost a cliche horror story. You can't make these things up. So this young man, we had a big partner desk, and this young man worked right across from me. And I was horrified. The betrayal was terrible. On both sides. The betrayal, it was so painful. Yeah. He walked into the office about 20 minutes later, and I looked at him, and I said, you are fired. And when he recovered from his shock, I said, how could you do this? How could you look me in the eyes? And he was charging, I think, 20% above cost. And we always charge straight retail. Mm -hmm. We still do. And it was really very sad for me because I liked him very much. But I thought he was a criminal. It was very painful to me. And also the client betrayed you as well. Without a doubt, which I did tell them. I, I did say that to them. Yeah, yeah. And it happened once, and that was the last time. Once you learn from each mistake. Right, right. And Joy, what about you? I'm sure there were mistakes. I don't know if it was as drastic as that. That is really a nightmare story. It was. That is a nightmare story, but, and I've heard similar stories. Unfortunately, they tend to be somewhat rampant in their industry. I've never been fired by a client, but I did fire a client when various vendors were calling me over the period of two days to inform me that a particular client was running rampant through the D&D building using my resale number to shop with her friends who were visiting from out of town and simply saying, oh, you know, this is through Joy Moiler Interiors. And they were just calling and saying, this just doesn't feel right. And this particular client had been shopping with me a great deal through the building. So she knew some of the the houses that I had accounts with. And she previously purchased items for herself. And under the tutelage of purchasing more items for herself, she was, you know, saying, you know, I, I want to purchase this, I want to purchase this. And she was giving her credit card there at the time, except that the shipping was changed to her friend's residence, wow. which is why they signaled to say that she's clearly here shopping on her friend's behalf using your resale number. So these are two nightmare clients. Mm-hmm. So clearly, my question to you is looking back, do you think there was any way, because we'd like this podcast to be helpful to other designers. So were there any clues early on, Susan, in your first meeting with that client who betrayed you, was there anything looking back you think, oh, that was a tip off? No, absolutely nothing. Yeah. I thought they were a very nice family. But Joy's, I don't know whose story is worse, Joy's or mine. They're both both off. Yeah. But I, I too had a situation where I fired a client. It was tremendously satisfying to do so. Because my my client is from one of the most famous families in New York City. And this is not a person that's accustomed to being fired. And when I said to her, I'm so sorry, but you're going to have to find another designer. I no longer wish to work for you. 
I thought her eyes were going to fall out of the sockets. I mean, and it was just what she had done was something similar to Joy's client. We would go shopping, we'd purchase something, and she, on a couple of occasions, asked the vendor to send the bill to her. Yes. I gently reminded her, I'm so terribly sorry, but when we work together, the bill comes to my office and my office pays the bill. And I established the groundwork. She didn't do it. I mean, she did do it, excuse me, but she did so many other awful things Mm -hmm. that I needed to speak with somebody about this because I'd never experienced this. I went to my father, who was a businessman, and I asked him what to do. And he said, Susan, when you are in business, nobody ever promised you a rose garden. You just need to decide if you want to continue with this woman who's causing you a lot of stress, or if you decide not to you know, continue with her. And that was very good advice. I decided not to continue with her. Mm-hmm. And I felt better. I felt that I could live with myself much more happily without her. And Joy, you may have felt the very same way. I, I do. And I think in both of these stories and uh, multiple other scenarios, which I've heard, I think the beauty in the story is that we have been fortunate to work with wonderful purveyors and vendors and makers mm-hmm. who we've long established powerful, great relationships with, who respect us enough to call us and let us know when something strange is happening. Yeah, they were looking out for you. Absolutely. Yes. And if we didn't have those wonderful relationships, both of these situations could have continued uh, for quite some time before we became aware of them. But it's always even more upsetting, as you say, Susan, when it's someone that you least likely expect, (laughs) you know, you know, people from very well healed families that you'd never, ever suspect, you know, who would who would do something like this. So that's when it hurts a little bit more. Yeah. You know, because you start every relationship, you know, I think whenever we get new clients, it's almost like speed dating times 15 when you've got the client on the other side of the table and you've got a few minutes to chat with them. And then you get up, get a drink, come back. And there's almost like sometimes another person sitting in the chair, but you have to just keep asking these layered sort of questions. And I've always believed that any interview that I have, I'm interviewing the person just as much as they're interviewing me, regardless of who's on what side of the table. I always sort of approach it in that clear heart so that I could obtain whatever information that I hope would help me do my job best. Uh, But sometimes you just don't know. Well, that's why one of the things I wanted to ask you about, both of you, because I mean, wisdom is hard won, as we know, and you guys have certainly won a lot of wisdom over the years. Do you have, like when you're interviewing new clients, as you were mentioning, Joy, do you have a set of specific questions that you run through with them? Or is it more free floating? Do you have points that you cover? Do you have a written checklist? Do you send something to people early on for new clients? Most of my work in the last, I guess, three years have been referrals. So that definitely helps sort of, you know, the vetting process and checking out whether or not something is a truly authentic project or if someone's a looky-loo just kind of trying to shop around and that sort of thing. So the referrals are wonderful because they give you sort of a behind-the-curtain sort of introduction to someone so that the conversation is not a litany of questions. It's more about just getting to know someone, which I really love, you know, 
know, because it's such an intimate relationship, you want it to be a positive experience and an enjoyable experience uh, for the client as well as for yourself. But I do kind of ask questions generally, like, do you have some items in the home that you absolutely would love to remain? Because I would never want to say, oh, that's got to go and it's grandma's curio and it's beloved. So I tend to ask those kind of questions like, do I need a passport? (laughs) You know, do I need to travel? Where is this project? Right. Those sorts of things. But it's very sort of lighthearted conversation. It's usually followed up by a second conversation as part of the dating, getting to know you process. It often involves a glass of wine or light fare, something like that, so that it's very just sort of personal and just to talk about their lives and what they hope to, to gain through the project. Yeah, because it is a kind of a dating, like you said, or a seduction. So what about you, Susan? Do you have specific points that you try to address early on? I mean, it's nice when it's a referral, as Joy was saying, or, you know, repeat customers are the best, obviously, repeat clients. But now people find you through Instagram, social media, that kind of thing. So how do you approach somebody who calls your office and said, I'm, I'm interested in having you work with me? My approach is very similar to Joy's, and I admire that she can have some wine with the clients. I never <laughs> would do that because I don't know what would come out of my mouth. <laughs> do that. But I've been in business a very long time. And many, many years ago, my former husband once said to me, Susan, every kitchen has a roach. That's a great line. So the two stories I told you were pretty much my two roaches. I've been very blessed We have a long string of wonderful, wonderful clients who have brought joy into my life, and I hope I have brought joy into their lives. No pun intended, Joy. And I'm a very intuitive person. Sort of after so many years of decorating and meeting with people, I get a feeling that this is going to work or if it's not going to work. And most of the time, it's worked beautifully. If I get a bad feeling about anyone, I will not even start the job because long ago I had a fabulous project. It's too long of a story to tell you here, but I'll just give you a synopsis. I had a bad feeling about the client, but the project was so phenomenal. It was a beautiful apartment in New York City, and I thought it was newspaper worthy of a story. And I went against my better judgment, and it was a disaster. And I learned never to sidestep my instinct. Always trust your gut because it is never wrong. Right, right. But of course, it's easy. It's never easy to say no to a beautiful project that you would love to do. But I think especially when designers are starting out and they've got, you know, their staff and they've got to have enough revenue coming in to cover their nut. So my question would be, are there specific things that you look for that you think, you know, it's instinctual, I understand, but are there things that you look for that you think this is a red flag? Yes. I look to see how they treat the house staff. I look to see how they respond to the doorman, to the person who's making the beds, who is cleaning the bathroom. I look to see if they are respectful to them. That to me is a major red flag. And actually to the reverse of that, I actually got a client in one of our most premier buildings in New York because he was seated in the lobby waiting for a car 
and he saw me sitting in the lobby as well, but I got up to help one of the cleaning staff take big, heavy black garbage bags to the curb. And I saw him struggling and he is very much a supporter and friend of the Dalai Lama. And he took that gesture of just being like, oh my God, this is someone that I need to work with. So, you know, people are looking at us the same way we're looking at them. But above anything, respect is a big, big factor to me. That can make or break it. If someone's arrogant or dismissive, I don't care where the project is. I can't participate in that. Right. Joy is so right. And I follow those lines as well. But I also look, most of the time, I like to go to a client's house for the interview and see how they live. I also look and observe how they treat their children and how they treat their dog. They Mm -hmm. know if they're bad to their dog, they're going to be bad to me. so So true. If that dog's got one leg missing, you know you're in trouble. (laughs) (laughs) Unless it was a rescue and they're doing a good deed. (laughs) No, but I'm really serious about that. It's It's very clear when you see how people treat their children. You know, if they shoo them out of the room, if they're rude to them, if they welcome them to join the meeting, sit down. They introduce you. and you yes. yes. And I like to see how these young people relate to me, if they're rude to me or kind mm-hmm. or sweet. These are small things, but very telling. Hi, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you're enjoying our podcast. My name is Anna Brockway, and I'm the co-founder and president of Cherish. If you're a designer who's struggling with long lead times from suppliers and increasingly impatient clients, now is the time to shop with us. Our vintage antique and one-of-a-kind inventory is ready to ship right now. To learn more, visit Cherish.com. That's C-H-A-I-R-I-S-H.com. And now back to the show. Now, I've often said that being a designer is somewhat of being a a marriage therapist. So what about the husband-wife dynamic? How often, (laughs) I mean, mean, what if you love the wife, but the husband says, oh, you know, often I think the husband says, oh, the wife can do whatever she wants or vice versa, or if it's two husbands, one can do, but then they always, and not always, but they often will come in and then, how, how do you deal with that? I can't respond to that question on tape. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, <laughs> oh, Joy. No names need to be named. <laughs> okay, so last summer, I was decorating a project on an island. The lady of the house started to tell me that her husband was having an affair. And I started to scream and said, no, 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 don't tell me, don't tell me. You're going to tell me all this and you're going to hate me in two weeks because you know I know it. I don't want to hear. I don't want to hear anything. I cannot tell you how many times... Being a woman, I've experienced this. Mm-hmm. And I have such warm, wonderful relationships with clients, but they're my clients. They're not my friends until the job is over. Mm-hmm. I never have lunch with clients. I never have dinner with them. I never go out you know, with the husband and wife for dinner. This is a job. This is business. I think that's excellent advice. Wow. Okay. I know so many designers that befriend their clients, because they think it's helpful. If you break bread with clients, the relationship changes. I like to be in charge. This is my project. I am the doctor. I am the professional. Stephanie and I went to Nantucket a few days ago, and we installed a house over a period of four days. The job is done. The client is wonderful. The client asked if I would have dinner. And I said, yes, I will so look forward to being with you. 
Next week when I go to Nantucket, I am going to have dinner with a client, but I've never had dinner in the year that it took to do this project. Right. During the process, no. Because now we can be friends. And I, I would like all of you out there to think about that. Very hard to have a business discussion when you've broken bread with a client. It's hard for you and it's hard for them. Right. And Joy, you've had several celebrity clients. And I mean, celebrities view the world differently, I think, than the rest of us. They almost think everybody is their friend as long as they need them. So has that been difficult for you to not to socialize? I'm the total flip side. I mean, because so much of what they do and their approach to life is about socializing. And, you know, I've been in Montana and to dinner and, you know, and it's just some other stuff, you know, but yeah, I mean, it's just the social aspect of it is just so great, not great and fabulous, but it's such a part of the dynamic and the job and just... It's a different mentality. They're used to having people around. And That's what I've observed from my little contact with celebrities. Yeah. Is that they just, you know, you're all you become part of their circle while you become you're part of the them. circle. You know, you're flying around with them and you're going to dinners and events and things like that. And if you do not socialize, then it starts to look like you're just there for a check just the way they move around and the way they see the world. So it's just a little different. And most of my clients I do definitely have dinner with and that sort of thing. And if we're traveling together, it's kind of something that can't be avoided. Right. But we have a stipulation that we do not discuss the project when we're eating. Oh, that's a good stipulation. Yeah, we just do not do that. You know, I think my way is a bit of an aberration because most of the designers I know do socialize, go out for lunch, socialize. But for me to have lunch for an hour and a half takes a lot of time away, a lot of business time away. And it's not about the money. It's about getting the project done. And if you go out a few times a week and you're going to lunch every day, it's just too much time. And also, I started working when I was quite young. And I had young children and a husband. And after a day's work, I just really wanted to go right. home to my family right. and not right. go out with clients. If I'm in Italy and I'm traveling with my client, you know, it's generally a long, long lunch. And I am often so tempted to pull my binder out or, you know, a notepad because I'm already starting to think about the next thing we need to do. But I know that that would be considered a ghost gesture. So I just kind of go through it. And then once we get back in that car, it's full steam ahead. So that's my way of sort of negotiating the fact that I'm very aware, keenly aware that I'm there for work, but the social aspect is something. I wanted to ask you again, first of all, Susan, what about, do you ever travel with clients, like take them to Paris or the flea market? Obviously, then your yes. socializing thing is a little different. Well, actually, no. Oh, okay. I, I still try not to have meals. Occasionally, you must. Right. One of my favorite experiences was going to London, and my client was meeting me in London. And I was pre-shopping, and I was in one of my favorite places at that time. And my saleswoman excuses herself to answer the telephone, and she starts to speak in German. And I said to her, oh, by the way, when my client joins us, you must only speak English. He speaks 14 languages, and I don't want you to say anything that you would not want him to hear. Mm -hmm. I was so glad I heard her speak German. You have to be prepared for all of these Mm-hmm. these events that could happen that could embarrass you but anyhow this particular client has been my client for 
close to 40 years for as long as I'm in business. And I've done a number of projects for he and his family over the time. And it's just been a blessed, they have been a blessing in my life for so many reasons. I think repeat clients are wonderful. (laughs) Yeah, but I, I think that Clients expand the scope of my life. I meet, as you do, very interesting people. I've had doors open to me that would never have been opened had I not been an interior designer. Right. And I wanted to get a sense from both of you. Joy, let's start with you. When you're first interviewing a client, I would think it would be disturbing if they asked too many questions, but I also think it would be perhaps even more disturbing if they didn't ask enough questions. So, what do you look for in terms of what the client is saying to you? Are there things that set you off? You think, you know, if they don't express any interest, like you don't want to work with this person. You're not going to enrich your, your life the way Susan was saying a client will enrich your life. So what do you listen for when the client is talking to you? I listen to see how committed they are to seeing the project through. I listen to see, I ask them almost, quick fire questions to see how they respond because if they don't respond to a quick fire series of questions that to me is going to signal that they take a moment to make decisions on the project oh that's interesting so that's just something that i do you know sort of my jeopardy sort of approach like if i ask you a question and you take too long to answer how are you going to respond if i give you two bad choices right three weeks later you know yes so it provides a little bit of insight to me. That's just sort of the way my brain works. But I want to know if they are really willing to let me take the reins or if they have a lot of time on their hands, like what's going on in their lives, that they just kind of want to shop with me every day or do they want to collaborate or just kind of participate when I need them to and just kind of let me do my job. Right. So I, I kind of ask them about what else is going on in your life and, and like that with my spitfire questions. Mm-hmm. You know, Joy's just covered a lot of territory in her answer, which mm-hmm. I think is terrific. And I would have to say that you can get clients that fill all of those boxes. I presently have a client and I asked her a question and I said, well, which one of these beds do you like? And she looked at me and she said, Susan, I hired you for your taste. You make the decision. Now, I mean, what could be... That's great. What could be more wonderful than that? <laughs> and, and she is a delight. I mean, it's very rare that you get this opportunity, mm-hmm. but I valued what she said. She mm-hmm. hired me for a reason, for my expertise. And yes. I went with that. And the house right. was installed and the clients were just delighted. Just delighted. But there are so many clients right now who have access to the same resources and magazines. You know when this happened? When our beloved shelter magazine started indicating resources in the backs of magazines. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the consumers, our clients, were then able to basically source the same resources that we could. And they're very savvy right now. And that sort of changed the design industry, I think, in terms of clients' approaches to participating on the project. So I honor your client, Susan, who said, let you just do your job. Because so many times, you know, clients, for the sake of Pinterest, are just developing these Pinterest boards and saying, yeah, I saw this and check out my Pinterest file. And they sort of want to 
create a direction for design for projects. I think at some point we might have a discussion about this subject, about clients shopping, what right. we shop. How do we get reimbursed when, I mean, we've made some changes to our contract to cover this, but it's still not perfect. When I find a piece of furniture and a client, I mean, this happened to me. I found a fabulous piece of furniture that was quite costly. And the client went online and found something in some closeout site that I didn't even know about. That's how savvy the clients are. And found an armoire very similar to what I had selected. But without my doing the shopping and showing pictures, they never would have known what to look for. Right. Right. So I spent all that time, all that effort, all the office time of people doing estimates and follow-up and whatever else it takes. And I was just out in the cold. Yeah. I'd like to know how other designers handle this. It might be a good conversation, Michael. And I've heard this from a lot of designers that clients try and find a cheaper one, but of course it doesn't have the provenance, it doesn't have the patina, it's not authentic, whatever. But, you know, I always say, I mean, this was my mantra for years. You do not hire a designer as a personal shopper. You don't hire a designer because you get a discount. You don't hire a designer just because they'll run around and, and do stuff for you. You hire a designer because you want their vision, their taste, the atmosphere they create, their expertise on where the lighting should, you know, all that stuff that you guys do so brilliantly that I can't do. And part of it is education. And I think, Joy, you're right about the magazines were doing that. Of course, they were doing that to make their advertisers happy. But I think then the internet really exploded that. And now all the information is out there. But I think one of the things that we don't get across is what really the role of the designer is. And it's not to do your shopping for you. Right. We're beyond procurement specialists. Yeah, exactly. That is like one hundredth of what you guys do. And it just drives me crazy when people think that having a designer is just a way to get into the D&D building, for example. It's just crazy. But I think that's true, Michael. And I think a lot of people don't have the respect for the designers that they do for their doctor or attorney. Exactly. Sadly. If I'm having heart surgery, I'm going to go to a heart surgeon. I'm you not want to going go to the go, best and most yeah, expensive, probably. I'm not going to find out who's applying to medical school and have them, you know, think about doing my surgery. <laughs> or you know? knock it off, you know, exactly. <laughs> I, right. You know, it's crazy. Thank you okay. for saying that, Susan. I get so crazy about that. I say that all the time. And we know? all do. We all yeah. do. Yeah. Now, that brings up another question that I want to ask you in terms of, especially with new clients, it's this feeling out dating routine that you guys are going through professional dating, what point do you bring up money, the budget? How do you suss out, do they have enough money? I mean, obviously clients that come to you, we would assume would have, no, they're going to have a fairly large budget. Like you said, you go to the top. But at what point do you bring it up? Because it's, you know, you're doing this little back and forth charming routine and you're sussing each other out and discovering each other. But money is a cold, hard reality. It comes up early in the conversation Mm -hmm. because they want to know what it costs. Mm-hmm. And I want to know if they have the money. Right, if they're willing to spend the money. Right. And often I will say, tell me what your expectations are. Do you expect to decorate this entire house in one year? Or is it going to be over a period of two or three years? I try and be as gentle as I can because money is a very touchy subject. I never want to embarrass anyone, nor do I want to embarrass myself. So clients give me their budget. I ask what they anticipate spending. And if I think it's not enough, I'd say, well, is this for the entire house? Would you like to do certain sections? 
as I just said, or over a period of years. I'm very flexible. I'm going to be here for a long time. I'm happy to work any way that you can work comfortably. I just want people to be comfortable with me. And money can be a very sticky subject. And I also find that generally clients always think the designer will go always over budget. So often they will tell you that they can spend less than they really anticipate. And I say to them, I know you might think that I'm going to go over your budget, but please tell me how much you can truly spend so I don't waste my time shopping or show you things that are less expensive or of less quality than you are expecting to purchase. So right. it works both ways. That's a good point. Yeah, that absolutely. is a very, very good point. I, I think that's wonderful. I find that the conversation, I think, starts to come for me during the proposal stage when you know everything's like, okay, let's go, let's do it. And then I submit a proposal. That's usually when someone starts asking questions just for clarifications, which is fine. That's what you want it to be. But with respect to budget, the budget can change at a moment's notice when they attend a Phillips auction and go kind of berserk with a paddle. You know? right. So yeah, then you have to have contingencies in your contract that allow for overages, I guess, in the event of an increase to the budget. You know, it kind of starts to get technical. And yes, Susan, those are all sort of crazy, uncomfortable conversations to have because you just want to be doing design work, not acting, you know, as a representative of Ernest and Young, you know, to just get a project done, right? Right, but there's also something else that we might touch upon. A lot of times, clients don't know what things really cost. Well, that's true, too. And I had a very good example of this. This goes back about 30 years ago. This was a client who had truly a magnificent home. The entry hall was like most people's living rooms. It had a beautiful fireplace. It was really quite special. They gave me a budget of $250,000. This was a very long time ago. And I told them, this is not going to be enough money to do the entire house, but we can pick the areas that are most important to you, and we'll concentrate on that. And they were okay with that. So we go to an auction. I think it was Sotheby's. Oh, no, it wasn't an auction. It was a dealer. And there was a table that was $50,000, and the client wanted it. And I said, we can't buy it. It is not within the framework of our budget. And the client said, no, I want to have this. And he said to me, I didn't know what furniture cost. They ended up spending $2 million or more than, a little more than that. Wow. It was, a, it was a very long time ago. Right, right. And that's a case where a client had the money and just needed to be educated right. coaxed along. Not right. pushed, but coaxed. Because it didn't fit within the frame of the budget. Right. And, and then you were the one who was concerned about their budget, not yes. them. That's so yes. that's and but I think that's very professional of you. If somebody Absolutely. says it's X money, then you're going to respect that. Well, I am a professional and, right. I, and we all right. need to act in a professional right. way. Right. Right. And then clients have more respect for right. us and our industry. I think everything's always an education, even if they've got five or six houses and they've been all over the world. Our industry is often something that they're just not really familiar with. They could be captains of industry, but yeah, as you say, you know, you show them a partner's desk, that's another tool that they won't even, they may have seen in a million times, but they don't know the detail and the workmanship. 
that goes in into pieces, particularly custom pieces. Most clients don't understand the constraints or the composition of a really, really good sofa. Why is a sofa $20,000? You know, (laughs) they don't understand that. So you really do have to educate them. You know, why is the Hastings bed? You know, why does it cost what it costs? It's an education. I mean, that's not necessarily the same sort of sleep that you're going to feel on another manufacturer's mattress. So you really have to educate them constantly. And it's, it's just part of the process. And, you know, the best consumer is an educated consumer. That's right. Right. I remember that and referring very well. <laughs> Marcy Sims. Marcy right, Sims. Exactly. Yes. I'm aging Hi, myself. But, you know, speaking of education, education goes both ways. I do have to say I have learned from clients as well. And one of the things I learned is it's okay to buy restoration hardware, mm-hmm. sofas. Because most young people, if you're dealing with people in their 40s, they don't want an $18,000 sofa, even if they can afford it. They want instant gratification. They That's want true. that. They want that sofa delivered in two weeks. You know? Right. And they I'm want so, that cloud. <laughs> and I'm so old now. I want it delivered in two weeks too. <laughs> well, you know, with some of these COVID delays, the RH cloud sofa is the only thing you can get quickly. So. And then I've heard designers say that even RH you can't get that quickly anymore. So you know, I mean, there's been a lot of supply chains. So you know, I think that's a very true point. Susan, it's what people value. Do you know what I mean? It's like they may know they're moving in five years and they don't want to necessarily take the sofa with them. And if it's almost like it could be a burden as they'd rather have maybe collect ceramics or something that that they'll take with them that's portable, but they don't care about the sofa. But there's other elements. Exactly. A lot of young people want to spend their money on experiences, not their homes. Right. So they don't want antique furniture. Right. You know, or maybe they'll have a limited number of antique pieces or get it from their parents. Right. So I've learned from young people as well. It's, it's been a wonderful experience. I actually wonder if our industry is going to change a little bit, if there's going to be a shift, because during the pandemic, everyone, of course, was rushing to purchase items for home. But now that everybody's so anxious to get out of the house, I wonder if sales are going to decrease greatly. A lot of people are, are wondering the same thing, Joy. I've heard that from other people. Will the interest in home that's been so frantic for the past year and a half Continue. somewhat diminish? Or do people have people learn to really appreciate their homes? I don't know. We're going to find out. Now, I'd like to ask each of you, what would be your advice to a young designer who's starting out, maybe has a small staff? How can they negotiate this client thing? Do they dare to say no? What if they know they're, maybe this is the best client, the easiest client they're ever going to deal with, what would be your advice to somebody sort of starting out? If they're really new to the industry, they may have no idea what to look for, you know, no signs. I mean, Susan and I, we've been in the industry for a long enough time that I think we could probably read people a little better than some uh, newer designers. So I think with them, it's really going to be kind of just kind of a feel it out, see what works for them, see what works for their business model, sort of see what their goals are, what their structures, what they want to be. A lot of designers I know during the past year took any project that sort of came to pass because they were so concerned that they weren't going to have right. any more projects. And now they're trying to figure out how to get rid of those clients so they can <laughs> right. focus on, you know, larger scale projects. But when you're starting out, you're starting from the ground up. I have been in the industry 30 years and I still feel like every day I'm learning something. 
every single day. I mean, now my thing is I'm still battling with contracts about changing things around because I'm not the biggest financial person in the world. So all that sort of legality of that sort of is lost on me. But that's something that this year I promised myself I wanted to become a little bit more educated in, I guess. So they may be focusing on the business aspect and not on the design aspect or rather Mm -hmm. vice versa, design and not the business, right? So there are just so many aspects of this industry. And I think paramount to that is the vendor relationships. That's something that I can just never stress enough. Sometimes those vendor relationships are going to predict the longevity of your design firm far more than any of the clients that you have. Because if you have bad relationships, no one wants to work with you. You'll never be able to order anything. Right. Michael, I was going to say that talking about young designers, that they concentrate on the business aspect. Joy touched on that. Mm-hmm. I just wanted to add on to that. When you're young, all you think about is how beautiful this house or this apartment is going to be. You really need to concentrate on how am I going to pay my vendors? How am I going to pay my bills? How am I going to get paid? How am I going to earn a living? Go back all the time to saying trust your instinct. Do not take a job if you have a bad feeling. Get a job as a waiter or as a waitress to supplement your income. But do not take a bad job because lawyers are very expensive. And some of these captains of industries will really grind these young people into the ground. The other thing I wanted to suggest to young people, after some trial and error, I decided that the only way I could stay in business is being paid in advance, not waiting until the furniture is delivered. So upon signing an estimate, it's 100% payment. I decided that when these jobs are really big, or even if they're smaller, I am not a banker, I'm a designer. I want to go to sleep at night, put my head on the pillow, and not worry about money. I've worked this way for, I guess, 30 years, maybe a little longer. If somebody does not want to pay me, if they don't trust me enough, I don't want them as a client. And if they don't want to pay me, I don't trust them as a client. Because I am true to my word. If I tell you I will do something, I will do it. If I cannot do it, I will never give you my word. When I have selected everything and it's ordered, to me, the job is done. If your contractor is going to take an extra six months to finish your apartment or home, it doesn't mean I have to wait to get paid because we can't deliver the furniture. I like to pay my vendors right away. And if I don't get paid, I can't pay my vendors. And I pride myself in paying vendors as soon as the the invoice lands at our office. So they will want to work with my office. And they'll watch out for you. Yes, they know we care about them. That's very true. But I would advise all young people to start their business in getting paid in advance. They are not bankers. They're designers. Just go forward and be fearless. You know, don't be afraid if somebody said, I'm sorry, I can't pay you that way. There'll always be another client. You don't want the client that won't pay you what you deserve. Very good advice. Very good advice. Fantastic. Yes. Yeah. Listen, I I have learned so much from this and I know our listeners will as well. And I really, I can't thank you two wonderful women. Fonts of wisdom, you're brilliant designers. And I just so appreciate you sharing all of this information with our listeners. So I want to thank you, Susan's Icy Screen. And I want to thank you, Joy Moiler. Thanks for listening to The Cherish Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend or colleague. Or even better, go to the iTunes store and post a review. 
We appreciate your help in spreading the word. And we would love your ideas for future episodes. Please email us at podcast at cherish.com. The Cherish Podcast is produced by Britta Muller and edited by Max Solomon of Hanger Studios in New York. Until next time.